Welcome to Anecdotally Speaking, a podcast to help you build your business story repertoire. Hi, everybody. I'm Sean Callahan. And hey, everybody. I'm Mark Shank. Well, hey, we've got another guest on our uh, show today. Um, I'm very excited to have with us Darren Woolley. Now, Darren is a, an old friend of mine. You know, we've gone back way, way into the days of uh, small children and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he's also the founder and global CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultants. That's a mouthful, Darren. But, but he's known in the industry as the Mr. Wolf of Marketing. And which I love. I mean, this idea of Mr. Wolf is just tremendous. Of course, you got to understand Pulp Fiction, right, Darren? Anyway, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Darren. Thanks, Sean. And thanks, Mark. Yes, I, I have to jump in straight away and say it's the Mr. Wolf from Pulp Fiction, which is Winston Wolf, not the Wolf of Wall Street, because uh, there is no cocaine or, uh, or Ponzi schemes or anything happening here. OK, right. Good. I'm glad to, I'm glad you've uh, sort of sorted that out for us. Um, yeah, look, it's it's great to have you um, on the show because Mark and I are so keen to explore this whole space of brand and you know kind of like what it means how do you use stories in that world how you see it from your perspective and that you know that marketing uh, great work that you do um and and maybe that's a good place to just kick off right you know given what's happening in the world today and and all the shifts that are going on i mean are you see branding and how people tackle branding changing at all or uh, what's your take on it at the moment well, first of all, to put it in the context of the global pandemic that we're all facing is that marketers are seeing consumers move online more and more and less of the bricks and mortar because of lockdown. And so marketing has had to move more online, you know, into the digital world. Uh, retailers are now relying on e-commerce. The advertising is now largely done through things like YouTube. I mean, there's still traditional media. Yeah. What they're also finding is where they've built really strong brands, that those brands are holding up during this time, that when people are uncertain, they, they're more inclined to stick with the things that they know and trust than to try something new. So to have a well-established, trusted brand is really important. And I think it's probably worth, you know, just defining brand for people because, you know, mm, Jeff Yeah, Bezos, how do you do it? How do you think okay. about that one? Yeah, Jeff Bezos said, uh, you know, it's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Well, that's his personal brand, but I'm not sure that's, you know, Amazon doesn't walk into the room, Jeff Bezos does. The way we think about brand is it's what is in the consumer's mind when they think about you and your category. Yeah, and, and I'll do a little experiment with both of you. I'm going to mention a couple of brands and just give me the first words that come to your mind. So let's start with Mercedes-Benz. Um, safety. 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 <laughs> yeah. But luxury as well. I mean, there's a, that's the other word that springs to my mind. Yep. Okay. Well, then uh, this will throw you Volvo. Safety. Uh, Foxy. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's try something different then. Uh, what about Jack Daniels? Jack Daniels. Uh, Timeless. Uh, yeah. Historic, I was thinking for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Now, those words that you associate with the brand is the branding. 
you know, is the brand, I mean. That's the position. Yes. And that, you know, the more people that are, first of all, aware of your brand and then have an association that makes it either desirable or puts it in their consideration list gives you a strong brand. There's, you know, Ferrari's an interesting one because, you know, you say Ferrari, you think of sports car, racing speed. Yet the yep. people that love Ferrari are often those that can't afford it. But it makes it a very strong brand because the fact is it's aspirational. You know, the young guy that wants the Ferrari and can't afford it will grow, you know, when he grows up and, and amasses his fortune, will immediately buy a Ferrari because that's the fulfillment of the idea of being successful is to drive around in the red Ferrari. It's interesting it's- you say that. Uh- Mark, you might have been thinking like I was, the, the project we did with the big uh, hotel chain and uh, international hotel chain and how we were pulling out stories from the owners of the, of the buildings because, of course, these hotels kind of um, uh, just provide the, the facelift for the building, the look and feel and, you know, the, the back-end systems. Mark, what was that, that experience we had in the Middle East that, uh, you know, around... Uh, you know, the stories around the actual, I was just thinking of young people, you know. Oh, so that, that there was a, uh, uh, a sheikh who was considering a particular luxury hotel brand acquiring one of the hotel, you know, acquiring a property and branding it as this. And uh, the, the developer who was working the deal said, so why are you, uh, why have you got your heart set on this? And he said, "Well, because when I was a when I was a, a child, my parents would take me to to Italy, to Rome uh, every year, and every year we stayed in the X Y Z hotel. And uh, I've always had this association of that hotel with uh, a wonderful experience. And so I, I want to own one now that I right. have the, the means to do yeah. so. So building <laughs> that story early." <laughs> See, no, I think the Commonwealth Bank does something similar with the little piggy banks. You know, those. You remember the the uh, oh, actually the rectangular ones in the shape of the actual Commonwealth Bank, and they would get those those accounts early for kids to sort of have that embedded in their mind. It sort of happens in all sorts of weird ways, doesn't it? Yeah, well, that's the idea, you know, a bit like the Jesuits, get them young and you'll have them for life, you know, is the, is the strategy there. So the Jesuits and the Roman Catholic Church understood branding a long time before it became, you know, mass, mass advertising. And look, the interesting thing is that it works not just for aspirational brands, but it also works on a day-to-day basis. I don't know if either of you have found that when you, you know, ever we get back to shopping in supermarkets, as you're walking the aisles, you're more inclined to just reach for the brand that you know than go for even the cheaper one because there's a sense of security in buying the brand you know. So this is, this is where branding works. So how do we go about building brand? We have to get awareness and consideration of the first two steps. You can't have a perception about a brand unless you're aware of it and then you need to consider what that means to you. And one of the main ways up to now has been advertising. And it's interesting because agencies, advertising agencies are talking a lot about brand storytelling. And this is where you spend your life, isn't it? This is you're you're right in amongst all those agencies, helping with their pitches, you know, understanding, you know, how they they provide services to their customers. That's your bread and butter, right? That that in yeah, the interface between the marketing and the agencies is where we operate. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, yeah. and matching, you know, we a bit of matchmaker, a bit of you know, uh, consultant or uh, relationship manager, all of those things to improve the productivity of that relationship. Mm. Now, it's interesting because when you think about advertising, people are inclined to say, well, that's storytelling. And very few ads actually tell stories. You know, there's lots of different ways you can actually promote a brand through advertising. You know, you can get a celebrity endorsement, which is rarely a story. It's more about someone saying this is a good brand or just being seen associated with it, unless they tell a story about their relationship with the brand. Um, there's also, there's also um, uh, you know, being uh, the ideal consumer, you know, this aspirational consumer that they reflect. But very few of them are storytelling, problem, problems and solutions, uh, or even demonstrations, you know, product demonstrations. There was a great ad years ago where they got vision saucepans and they put an aluminium saucepan in it and heated it up until the aluminium melted. Now, isn't that a brilliant demonstration? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But occasionally brands will use storytelling. And we've seen that, you know, when I mentioned before Jack Daniels, Jack Daniels has spent all their advertising on telling us that, you know, they make uh, uh, Tennessee-style whiskey and the secret ingredients is time. So it's all about waiting for it to happen. And that's what we're left with is this sense of it's all about taking it slow, you know, being laid back. And that's how they create this amazing uh, whiskey and that's our brand perception. But in actual fact, storytelling is not pervasive in advertising. It's actually a very small segment of it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And because I would imagine those guys in the in the advertising agencies see themselves as storytellers, you know, par excellence. Right? What's what's the reality in that world for you? Like, do you do you see that they're just bursting at the seams with great stories, left, right, and centre, or or um, yeah, what's what's actually happening in that world? Look, um, a lot of advertising actually uses what's called borrowed interest. You know, they'll use popular culture or films um, to actually reflect. You know, think of that fabulous uh, Apple ad from years ago in uh, uh, 1984 when they launched the Macintosh was borrowing largely from Orwell's 1984. Now, when you borrow popular culture, you are actually making big S stories. You know, that was a story. That was the story of the little guy being the Apple Macintosh against yes. the big guy being IBM. But, but it's done in a big storytelling way. Can, it's very rare say, that they make small stories. Yeah, yeah, just on that, I see that Apple, of course, is in a lawsuit at the moment with the people who make Fortnite, a company called Epic. And Epic brought out a new version of the 1984 uh, advertisement with Epic being the, the sledgehammer swinging uh, little guy smashing the big apple. So I thought that was an, an interesting, you know, recurrence of the, of the theme. Well, and also uh, Apple didn't have that problem because George Orwell had passed away when they made the ad. So, you know, it's impossible to sue for your copyright when you're dead. Right. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so so there's a lot of talk about storytelling. But as I said, you know, it's it's not exclusively owned by advertising. In fact, advertising will often call things stories when they're not. 
you know, you think about a lot of the ads on television, they're more like a list of features and benefits than they are an actual story. And even when they do tell a story, it's more a story for entertainment rather than, and, and to borrow that interest than it is to actually tell a story unless there are those few opportunities. The ones that do it best are pro possibly the not-for-profits, you know, where they have quite an emotional story to tell in the people that they help. And so the story is just reflecting the circumstances of the people they help. Yeah, yeah, interesting. The um, uh, one, one of our uh, partners, uh, Park Howell, uh, has a, a, a story branding method that we talk about in our corporate storytelling. Um, and he uses the hero's journey, you know, the big S storytelling to, to take people through that, that process and uh, to get them thinking about their business and what it, what it looks like and what it stands for and, you know, where it's heading. Um, what's your take on, you know, people taking a sort of a, a story methodology, if you like, to try to, encapsulate what their brand is about have you seen that done uh, in your sort of in, in your journeys have you uh, come across that approach look uh, probably the most common story line that's told is the founder's story you know and we're seeing that a lot especially now in the age of you know the technology baron let's call them you know let's think about uh 20 years ago, there was probably Richard Branson, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, you know, and their story was synonymous with Steve Jobs for Apple, Richard Branson for Virgin and Bill Gates for Microsoft. Now we've got this new generation of, of technology baron in a way and, and, you know, like the Jeff Bezos, the Elon Musk and, and uh, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, and their stories are actually the ones that are being told in relation to the branch. You know, you can't think about Facebook without thinking about Mark Zuckerberg. You can't think about SpaceX or Tesla without thinking about Elon Musk. Yeah. The interesting part of it is that their stories are largely the ones that are driving the value of those companies. You know, Professor Scott Galloway at uh, Stern Business School at New York University is saying at the moment the value of these companies is driven more by the CEO's story of the brand than it is by the reality of their financial performance, which is why their share prices and their market cap are multiples of what they're actually worth. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, so I, I recall a couple of years ago at one of the Super Bowl ads was uh, the Budweiser ad where they showed the, the, the founder story. The founder came out from Germany, uh, was, was met with a very hostile reaction in New York, traveled out, uh, into the Midwest and uh, met his business. Oh, uh, sorry, the the paddle steamer burned and sank, and he swam ashore. But he still had his book with his secret recipe. Anyway, um, yeah. it was it was it was a it was a good sixty second story. Well, you know, yeah, absolutely, Mark. You know, and and especially with online now, where they're not limited to a thirty second ad, you can start to tell these longer stories and these more detailed stories about the the. Uh, the founder of the company and, and the history of the company in a way that's relevant to people, gives them a sense of what the brand is. But another one that's interesting is Colonel Harlan Sanders Oof. for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Because, you know, for a long time they moved away from Colonel Sanders, but they've bought, especially 
elsewhere in the US and, and to a lesser extent here. They've brought Colonel Sanders to the front and center of, uh, of their advertising because the founder epitomizes everything that's, you know, the great taste, the uniqueness, all of those things. And yet when you actually see the story of uh, Colonel Sanders, he was actually a bit of a, uh, a uh, carpetbagger, you know, sort of hawking <laughs> himself around, licensing, licensing his recipe to uh, southern uh, fried chicken shops around the country. Right, yeah. Well, now, Darren, now one of the things, of course, we like to do on our podcast is to hear a, hear a story and, and then have a bit of a conversation about why the story works. And, and I'm just wondering, do you have a story that you can share with us that, uh, uh, you know, potentially our listeners might be able to reuse or, or at least get a bit of insight into storytelling? Look, um, and, and I was thinking about uh, talking about one of the industry stories because there's so many sort of big stories about uh, from the advertising industry. But then I thought uh, probably uh, I'd rather share something that's very personal. And that is one of the things I do is meet with agencies all around the world and I help them develop their story. Because, you know, as part of us helping them win business or helping, you know, putting clients and agencies together, they have to have a good pitch story. And they all talk about telling their advertise, uh, their agency story. So, you know, one of the services we provide is to go and talk to them about, you know, get them to pitch their, their story and, and then help them refine and craft it. And I've done that hundreds and hundreds of times. But in this particular case, I was in uh, Canada with a colleague of mine and uh, he'd set up a number of these meetings with different agencies. And we turned up to this very large agency and it was an independent agency. So the, the people that owned the, you know, it wasn't a network, it was owned by the people in the, in the building. And uh, you walked into the foyer and it was, uh, you know, very impressive. Hundreds of people working there and the C CEO sort of sauntered over. You could tell he just had that swagger in his walk. And I'm thinking, oh, this is, this is a good sign, you know, a bit of confidence. I'm going to get a good run for my money, possibly a great story here about the agency. And he took us into the boardroom and there was all of the team uh, sitting around the table uh, all anxious to uh, to present their story to me. We're, I was introduced to everyone and then he started. He said, I'm going to tell you the story of our agency. It's going to take 15 minutes. So I, I would appreciate it if you sit there and just listen for 15 minutes. I said, absolutely, I'm in your hands. And he started. And he went slide after slide after slide. This is how many offices we have. This is how many staff. Here's our clients. Look at hundreds of clients. Uh, here's all the things that we do. And here's some case studies of how we've helped our clients. This is pretty typical fodder for an agency credentials presentation. And he got to the end of it and he looked at me eagerly and he said, how do we go? And I said, that is the longest 17 minutes of my life. <laughs> because I was expecting a story. You told me you were going to tell me the agency story. And all you've done is given me a list of features of your company. But nowhere do I walk away from this, memorising any of them, because there's so many. How could I possibly remember this? And I think it's, uh, for me, it's one of the big disappointments that the agencies that should be the ones that know have, how to tell stories, suffer a bit from being the cobbler's uh, shoes or the builder's renovation in that they don't know how to tell their own stories. 
And I'm not sure if it's they're too close, they actually have no perspective on what they actually represent, or whether there's an expectation that you know that you need to tell all the features. You know, I often say to them, if you're on a date and you started telling the other person how much money you got and what job you do and, and went through that same list, do you think you get lucky at the end of it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, the, the, the likelihood has just dropped significantly, I would say. Uh, that's fantastic. The, uh, I mean, it's, it's such a recurring theme. This is something we see over and over again, where, especially when people you know, proudly say, I'm going to tell you the story, and then no story appears. Um, yeah, it's, it's common. But let's have, a, let's have a chat about the story first before we jump into the, if you like, the content. Um, mm. Mark, what are, what are your first thoughts? What, what do you like about that story? Things that, you know, sort of jump out for you. Uh, the description of, the, of the, the head guy, you know, swaggering and just kind of the expectation that creates. So that I could picture him. So that was, uh, I thought that was good. Uh, I, I loved that was the longest 17 minutes of my life. The, yes. For, nice a number of re- for a number of reasons. One of them, one of them being, you know, I, I kind of, I'm very familiar with that, but the other one is the just. It is a bit surprising that uh, somebody actually says that. Just some, you know, like that Darren said it to his face, speaking truth to power. So, I mean, Darren Darren benefits from a bit of star power, I think, in that sort of situation. Yeah. But uh, so that helps. But well, that, what did he that, say? What did he say in return? Did he was he upset? Well, he was absolutely then on the defensive, and he started playing back to me why what he'd done was right. It was interesting, the creative and strategic people in the meeting immediately got what I was saying to them, you know, because I then started to uh, uh, disassemble what he'd done and get to the really core of what the proposition was that he was trying to communicate and how they could tell the story. The creative people almost came alive during that session because they started saying, hey, yeah, and we could do, you know, they could see the opportunity in there. But he was very defensive and, in fact, stayed defensive. And I find that a lot in that the more senior the person, they take ownership of the presentation. And I actually said to him, look, the bottom line is you've got to think about why you're doing this presentation. What is it about this meeting that you're trying to achieve? And he said, well, to tell you about my company. I said, no. The purpose of this meeting is get to the next meeting and ultimately win the business. That's why you have these meetings. Let's be yeah. very clear about that. If I'm going to see an advertising agency and they spend so much time telling me what an advertising agency is and does, either I'm, they think I'm stupid or they are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There's some things that are just decided as read, you know, they sit there. You should be able to read them off the website. You don't need to uh, have the CEO of the company explain them to you. Um, the the uh, just going back to the story. I mean, I think the story too is you know apart from not apart from in addition to that um, you know the surprise. It's a visual story throughout, right? And um, I think that's that's another element which makes for any good story. If you can't see it, it's probably not even a story actually. So. Uh, I think that's another a key element. Um, actually, one of the things you remind me of in that story, Darren, is 
you know, how you're talking about how the, the creatives sort of started to really get it straight away. I reckon this is a, um, a recurring theme in any sort of creative industry. So, for example, I was doing a, I've done a number of programs for one of the big gaming companies in Silicon Valley. And the, if you, and there's thousands of people in this company, and they would say that they're a story company. And their CEO stands up and says, we're a story company. And sure, you know, if you look at a game, a game is this unfolding story, you know, it's, you know, sort of play your own adventure type thing. But I reckon there's a lot of uh, stress that gets created inside the company because everyone's looking at each other going, oh, shit, you know, we're, we're supposed to be a story. What's this story thing? Like, what, how do you actually do that? And so when you go in and teach them, usually the people outside the creatives, right? So you got the creatives who might be using very specific story techniques to create a game but then you've got the salespeople, you've got the technologists you've got the you know the administration people you've got the leadership uh, layers none of those know how to tell stories it's it's fascinating so i think there's an opportunity there i think every big creative company needs to be looking at all those people who are not quite in the the slot of doing the storytelling and think okay how can we help them get some story skills Sure, and I also think that part of it is that the creative, as you say, the creative people are used to telling stories for another purpose yeah. you know, or developing stories or identifying stories, whereas a lot of people in organisations where story is part of their business, in fact, an important part of their business, often yeah. then have an attitude that, well, story is what we do, it's not who we are. And yeah, I think I that that's why it almost, I've seen situations where people have almost become anti-story. They think that somehow it's not business to be telling stories because that's sort of, that's what the creatives do. That's what the screenwriters do. That what's, that's what the directors does. Right. But somehow that we have to be more business-like because stories entertainment or stories, you know, that. And it's yes. not business. And this idea is just crazy because, you know, story is what it is to be human, not what it is to be business. Yeah, yeah. Somehow along the lines we've learnt, sort of taught ourselves out of story, you know, in organisations. Anyway, we're bringing that back. Absolutely. Um, cool. I mean, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the actual storytelling element, but one of the themes that we have in our uh, corporate storytelling paper is the importance of story listening and even story triggering you know and that idea of you know actually asking questions to get people to tell you stories uh, i was just thinking on the branding side uh and you, we sort of started off with the jeff bezos quote but it's almost like the the millions and millions of stories that get told about a product or a service or whatever you're offering ends up being together becomes the, the emergent brand if you like um, you know, you can say to your, to your blue in the face that let's say you offer, we offer the very best technical support. Uh, and then when the first customer walks in and asks a question and you can't answer it, the technical question, well, that's one story against you. And, you know, and if that just picks up, I don't know, what's your, what, where do you see that happening? Is there, are there many companies doing that in an interesting way out there that you see? 
Well, the interesting thing that has happened is influencers. You know, every Instagram person with more than half a million uh, followers or every person that's on uh, TikTok with, you know, a million followers or whatever is suddenly become their own little brand broadcaster. And brands are out there actively recruiting these influencers to talk about their brand. Now, some of them do it in a very ham-fisted way and say, here's the script. But most of them say, here's the product or the service, you know, we'd like you and we'll pay you to talk about us. Now, it's interesting then because uh, by selecting the right influencers, they've got the right audience. But then the strength of the brand comes down to how consistent those influencers are in the way they present the brand, they present the product. So, yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a move and there's companies now that actually manage influences on behalf of brands. So you can go to these companies and say, I need people that uh, can reach uh, young women, 18 to 29 who are interested in makeup. And they'll give you, you know, here's 20 influences that we have on our books um, that we can then work, you know, help you work with them to get your brand out there. And this is based on the idea that, you know, if you tell your own story that's making you look good, that's okay. But if someone else tells a story about you and it looks like they're third-party independent, then that's even more compelling. And so I think that's where, you know, we see this in PR, getting journalists to write about you or opinion pieces written about you rather than writing your own story is infinitely more powerful. Fascinating. Kind of reminds me of, um, I remember hearing Tim Ferriss talk about um, the launch of his four-hour workweek book, you know, the one that really set him, set him off. And he had a quite a, I thought, a, a brilliant way of getting people to talk about it he would go to conferences and he would make sure he had in his conference um uh you know ticket that he had access to the green room so he could sort of talk to the speakers and so what he would do is he would walk up and they were mainly tech uh, conferences he was going to and he would walk up to a you know a table there might be three or four people standing around the you know a stand-up table and he would just stand next to them and he wouldn't say anything uh except for you know a small hello and then eventually they would ask him, they'd sort of say, oh, so who are you? What do you do? So, oh, yeah, I'm Tim Ferriss. I've, I've got a, a new book out, four-hour work week. And then he would stop, right? And they would continue to talk. And then eventually someone would say, um, so, uh, Tim, tell us, tell us a little bit about your book. And he would just tell them just a little snippet. And he said, out of the four people, there'd be one person who'd be really interested. And, and you know, these people are bloggers and, you know, influencers of sort. And uh, eventually one of them would hang around and, and sort of say, look, I'm really interested in that. And then Tim would actually uh, think of a specific page or two that they were interested, might be interested in. And he said, I'll send you that page. And he would just send that one page. And so there was this idea of pull rather than push. He wasn't standing there going, hey, look at me. Look at this wonderful book I'm writing. I'm the best in the world. He would actually just give them enough so that they were pulling out and eventually one out of the four was self-selecting as someone who was interested in what he was doing. And I thought that was, that was actually kind of a neat way of uh, getting people interested. Yeah. So Sean, that's a uh, technique called inbound marketing and it's become very popular. 
So right. outbound marketing is where you do advertising, you know, or you do, uh, you know, uh, emails, database marketing. You're sending your message at people and right. you're targeting people and you're hitting them with the message, buy, buy, buy from us. Inbound marketing turns that on its head and it says create content that's engaging, informative, entertaining, you know, storytelling, information, advice, and then make it available to people so that when they search for it or share with them on share it on social media. And so when they find it, they come to you. Now here's the difference. If you go out and someone shows interest, they're only a cold prospect in quotes. Whereas if you've created all of this content that people have discovered for themselves because you've shared it, you've made it available through SEO, search engine optimization, then they come looking for you and they're a warm lead because they've almost uh, pre-qualified themselves to want to buy from you. And so they're two quite different ways of working. Um, the inbound marketing works particularly well for services companies or where you're providing knowledge. And, but it can work across many categories. Outbound is more mass market, low consideration, that type of thing. So, so people are already using that technique. Yeah. So in simple terms, I guess uh, the outbound marketing is the push strategy and the, the inbound is, is, is the pull strategy where you, People, you know, you put it out there and people pull you towards them as opposed to you pushing your messages. Kind of like Absolutely story versus right. assertion. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, and I reckon- it's interesting. Sorry, sorry, Sean, but uh, no, it's no, interesting because one of my favorite brands is Aesop Skincare. Now, oh, Aesop oh, is. You have got lovely after- skin, Garen. Thank you. But Aesop <laughs> is named after uh, the Greek fabulist. Who told gave us all those amazing, you know, the hare and the tortoise? And I have read somewhere that he didn't write them all, he just took ownership of them. So, you know, perhaps it was before copyright. But anyway, so now you've got a brand quite successful, and the the brand experience is amazing. I don't know if you guys have been into their store, but the stores are beautiful, the packaging, the service and advice is all great. I think a lot of brands know how to create the customer experience or the brand experience, but when they have to articulate it as a story, they really struggle. And I'll tell you why. I, I, I always, I checked this morning because I remember reading this a, a couple of years ago, but go to the ASOP uh, website and it has our story as a link. I clicked on it and it says, ASOP was established in 1987. We are headquartered in Melbourne and have offices and stores in many parts of the world. Our objective has always been to formulate skin, hair and body care products of the finest quality. We investigate widely to source plant-based and laboratory-made ingredients and use only those with a proven record of safety and efficacy. Would you stop that? That's a story, gents. (laughs) (laughs) No. You know what? You know where you read that? Uh, The original uh, connection there. I had that in my book. See, <laughs> the ASAP was my example. I think, and interestingly, they obviously hadn't read my book because they haven't changed it since uh, I published uh, two or three years ago. So, but I think this is it, the biggest challenge for marketing is how do you, you can create an experience, but how do you tell the story? Yeah. And how do you tell it in a way that is compelling and engaging? 
I heard a really lovely uh, foundation story just the other day. Uh, it starts off by someone just sort of saying that, you know, uh, it, was actually, it was actually told from the perspective of the wife of the founder. So the wife sort of said, my husband has been a Qantas pilot for 30 years. It's all he ever wanted to do. From the time that he was six years old, he wanted to fly. And, uh, you know, she builds that up about how, and of course, COVID hits, all of a sudden, all these Qantas pilots are, are out of work. Well, we could sit around and, and mope and complain, but we decided not to do that. We decided there was an opportunity to create a new business around automating homes. And these our pilots are technical people of the engineering sort of mindset. And so we started automatedhome.com.au and... And, I, you know, it was a little, a little more involvement, there's more emotion in how she told it. But I read that and I thought that is such a great, you know, starting story for a business. I'm sure they'll do extremely well. And they've picked a nice niche too. I think there's a, a niche right at the moment for that type of service. So, so, yeah, a story. But I don't know if they, she just told that story, not from a, hey, I'm doing a marketing thing. It was on Facebook and essentially her just, telling the story but as soon as i saw it i went god i'd have that on the website you know that that is the that is the foundation story right there and one, sorry I, I saw one in malaysia a couple of years ago that i uh, i gave a keynote and was walking off the stage and was being introduced to people and somebody said oh this you've got to meet this lady she's got a fabulous cosmetics company and uh, uh, a great uh, a, a great story to tell Oh, okay. So tell me about the, the story of your company. Oh, well, uh, you know, I saw an opportunity in the market and I was able to raise the funds. And, and so back in the, in the 90s, I, I was able to buy the uh, uh, one product and I've expanded it. And now I've got many products. It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not inspirational. Like, so, so, but why? And she said, oh, well, the reason why is because my, my daughter, who was 12 at the time, had really... She had a lot of skin problems and whenever she would use any sort of uh, cosmetic products, uh, her skin would get worse. And no matter how expensive the product, uh, and I went, you know, I went right up the very best. And then one day a friend said, try this. I tried it and my daughter's skin started to clear up immediately. And I checked it out and, and it was because it was, you know, a, a completely organic and all natural material, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it was developed by this particular scientist but I went to buy more and I couldn't find it. Went to all the shops and eventually I, I went back to the manufacturer and I said, why can't I find this? And the manufacturer said, well, we're, we don't see a, a, a place for this in our product portfolio. So we're actually phasing it out. Um, and she said, oh, and so she was really upset and she goes, well, what can I do about it? So she went and, and spoke to many, many banks. Uh, they wouldn't lend her the money, but finally somebody lent her the money and she went to that company and said, I want to buy that product. And uh, she bought it off them. And what's more, when the scientists found out that she bought it, she spoke to him. He eventually joined her and they created the entire range with the objective of making sure that no little girls uh, go through that same thing that her daughter went through. So, Did she update her, uh, her uh, story at that point? I certainly hope so because it was much better. <laughs> yeah. God. It, it was like a wow. Back. 
Mark, it, it reminds me of, you know, Simon Sinek came out with his book, the, what was it, The Five Whys or something? Why, 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 why? You know, and that's had a huge impact on marketing because it's given rise to the purpose organisation or the purpose marketing, you know, the, um, the Ben and Jerry's who, you know, when they're asked why, rather than going to why they do business, this was about why start the business in the first place. And yet a lot of companies that have lost sight of why they started doing what they do are now embracing a purpose that's actually not related to the, the founding of the company or the purpose of the company. I think it's yeah. so much more compelling when people can give you an authentic uh, story about why did this company start? You know, whether it's uh, Hewlett and Packard or, or Apple or any, or, or any of those companies or even, you know, this cosmetic company in Malaysia. When you get hear an authentic story like that, it's really quite moving. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You can connect with it. Um, I was reading last week that, uh, I can't remember who said it now, it was, it's in a new book called Humanocracy. I'm just having a name blank on the author. But um, he was saying that a lot of companies have missions, but very few companies have employees who are, who are on a mission. Right. And I think that's the key point. I saw a mission statement the other day, which is kind of like a purpose statement um, the other day. I, and, and it was just gobbledygook, um, you know, corporate, you know, corporate babble. Right? You could tell no one. It was it was obviously developed by a, a committee, and no one would have been on a mission to do that thing that it was described. You know, we are going to be the number one. You know, blah blah blah, that type of thing. So yeah, yeah, these stories are far far more important. Well, I'm just keeping an eye on the time, guys. Um, I think we need to uh, probably start to wrap it up. But let's uh, just to finish things off. Um, is there is there sort of um, I guess, any advice that you're finding that you're sharing with, um, you know, the people who are working in this branding space in terms of how they can start to shift, if you like, towards story or, or uh, you know, do more of it in the way that we've been talking about in, in our conversation today, Darren? Well, there is, and, and it's really about building trust when you are using stories in business and, and for brands, because, you know, there's sort of three elements that build trust in telling a story. One is authenticity. You know, people can tell when you're lying. People can tell when you're pretending. So the first thing is in your stories, the more authentic they are, the better. The second is the idea of empathy, you know, stories that uh, convey empathy or in the telling of the story, you're demonstrating empathy with the listener are incredibly powerful for building trust. And the third one, in, and, and this is particularly good for storytelling, is that it speaks to the person's idea of what makes sense. They call it logic, but it's actually about telling and, and talking about a concept or a principle that the person can relate to. And one of the best things about stories is that they re often reduce quite complex things down into quite simple but memorable systems or things that someone can remember and process. And so we talk about it a lot because one of the things that uh, we find in this post-truth fake news world is that brands are desperate to want storytelling or brand stories, have to have those elements to get that type of engagement. Yeah. 
That's so true. I heard someone the other day uh, complain about uh, not fake uh, fake news, but they were saying that they really hated fake lies. I think fake lies are truth. <laughs> if I'm if I if I think about it correctly. Well, thanks, Darren. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on board today and uh, learn a little bit more on this whole space of branding and and stories. It's it's been tremendous. Um, and and for everyone who's listening in, um, yeah, the, in our corporate storytelling paper, there is a, a good section on storytelling and branding. And yeah, please have please download that and have a look. And and love to hear your thoughts. You can put them in the comment section. Uh, just. Uh, where the, where the podcast is. Yeah, so thanks again for listening to Anecdotally Speaking. And, of course, yeah, tune in next week. Every Tuesday morning, that's when you get the, uh, the new uh, Anecdotally Speaking. Uh, yeah, enjoy how you can put your stories to work. Bye for now. Were you getting any buffering of Darren's audio, Sean? So sick of this. MBN, why bother? <laughs> Anecdotally Speaking was engineered by Dave Stokes from author to audio.